So I showed it to the doctor, and well, she said it's smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about building apps on a tight timeline. How can you quickly turn around a project to respond to an emerging situation like COVID-19? We talked to Phil Smith to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes a brand new article to the website five days a week? That's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. Developers often worry about the SEO of their single-page applications and how well they do on Google searches, but also how complex building a server-side rendered application might be. In Getting Started with Nuxt, Timmy Oyeni teaches us how to create server-side rendered applications using Nuxt, how to configure your application for development, and how to deploy to Heroku. In Implementing Dark Mode in React Apps Using Styled Components, Blessing Crowfiga demonstrates how to efficiently implement dark mode in a React app on a simple web page, making use of some React features like hooks. He also discusses the pros and cons of dark mode and why you should consider adopting it. In How to Succeed in Wireframe Design, Anton Suprunenko takes a deeper look at one of the most simple yet quite often underrated activities in web development, the design of wireframes. Learn what wireframes are, why we need to design them, how to get the most out of the designs, and how to take it to the next level. Kelvin O'Meara Shone brings us the first article in a Mirage.js deep dive series with Understanding Mirage.js Models and Associations. Take a closer look at what models and associations are and the roles they play in crafting a production-ready front-end with Mirage.js and all without the need for a back-end. And... Readability programs such as Grammarly, Readable and Yoast are the subject of an article by Frederick O'Brien entitled Readability Algorithms Should Be Tools, Not Targets. Frederick stresses the importance of not writing purely to please these automated tools, but instead to find your own voice and avoid the risk of sounding just like everybody else. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. He is director of the full-stack web development studio A Million Monkeys, where he partners with business owners and creative agencies to build digital products that make an impact. He's worked on projects for the BBC, Airbnb, Sky Cinema, Pearson, ITV and Sussex Wildlife Trust, to name but a few, and works right across the stack with React, Vue, Laravel, Gatsby, WordPress and more. Hailing from Brighton on the UK's south coast, He's also an author for Smashing Magazine, writing recently about the Alpine JavaScript framework. So we know he's a skilled developer and communicator, but did you know he can solve a Rubik's Cube in six seconds using only his feet? My smashing friends, please welcome Bill Smith. Hi, Phil. How are you? I'm smashing, Drew. So we're in the thick of this crisis of of COVID-19. And I think one of the interesting ways that we're placed as designers and developers and technologists is to be in this position where we can still work and we can still do our jobs. And the work that we do is often based around providing access to information or enabling people to communicate, which is, I think, very relevant in a situation like this. So I was interested to look at how those skills could be put to use to help in a time of crisis. And then I saw your blog post, Phil, uh, about how you had been doing something just like that. So what have you been working on? How did this all start? So it's 
uh, a very crazy story. Um, about three weeks ago, I was uh, catching up with um, some friends and was feeling very uh, kind of glum about the whole situation. We've got two kids who were trying to homeschool while keeping this business going. Uh, and I was feeling a bit down about not doing that very well and not doing my job very well. Um, and the prospects of seeing friends and things like that. Um, and then I, I kind of had a chat with my wife who said, look, you just need to pick yourself up a bit, really. And uh, the same day, um, a chap called David got in touch via Wired Sussex, which is like a kind of tech group in, uh, in and around Brighton. And he said he had a friend who'd, built a website which was around flashcards for medical practitioners um, who were caring for patients suffering with uh, COVID. Um, and uh, she was looking for a um, developer to turn this website into an app and add a few features. Um, and they wanted it done very, very quickly and they had essentially no money. Uh, <laughs> and I kind of dwelt on it for not very long. And I've been building um, apps and uh, have this kind of experience of doing back-end and front-end development. And it just felt like uh, this was, it felt like a significant moment really where I was having a bit of a crisis and this incredible opportunity came around and this need and I could actually contribute um, something. So I got in touch with David. There was a lot of back and forth. Um, and then I spoke to Rachel, who is uh, the founder of Card Medic. Uh, she's currently in America. So there's this weird time difference that we've got to deal with every day. Um but she was really keen and very trusting of me. Um, I spoke to her husband, who's a, a bit more tech savvy. Um, and then we uh, set to work. And essentially it was, there were a few features that she wanted added, but this was really about actually building the existing site is on Squarespace. So uh, it needed a new backend built and an API and then an app that calls on that API and a few nice features added. So, it's the, I mean, yeah, people might have seen the app or they can download it. Um, it's ridiculously simple. Um, so it was really just about, it wasn't about, you know, this is a, there's loads of learning to be done. It was just about, there's quite a lot of work to do. I just need to get it done. So I had a bit of client work to do, but tried to put that off as much as possible and did a lot of late nights and got it churned out in about 10 days, I think it took, from starting to getting it on the app store. So it, just in the in the briefest terms, what is the app and how do medics use it? One of the uh, strange medical nuances of uh, COVID is because of the way it's grown, there are lots of people caring for patients who have um, COVID who have no experience in respiratory illness 
And they may well be looking after patients whose first language isn't their first language because of the rate that it's grown um, and because of these issues like in uh, them dealing with it in care homes and things like that. So what the app does is it's a kind of flashcard system whereby if there's a particular subject you need to speak to a patient about, um, so that might be about something like someone's having difficulty breathing, then there would be a flashcard which explains to the patient why they're having difficulty breathing and what the practitioner is going to do about that. Um, and uh, the app can also read that script aloud. Um, and uh, we're currently in 10 languages, which is all kind of machine translated at the minute. Um, yeah, but that's the the basics of the that app. That sounds incredibly important and incredibly useful for, for people working under this sort of pressured situation out in the field. With the, the sort of quick turnaround that was needed for this project for obvious reasons, how did you go about breaking it down and deciding what needed to be there for launch and what you could deal with and add later? Rachel had lots of uh, feature requests that uh, she wanted to add um, to the app. What we agreed from the outset was the first version, which is the version that is now available, the things that would ship are all the functionality on the existing site. So that is translation into different languages, um, read aloud, the kind of text-to-speech, uh, and then a list of cards alphabetically. Uh, and the one that uh, we wanted to add, which we felt fitted into the, uh, the thing we wanted to launch with, was a card where practitioners could take a photo of their face and then show it to their patients along with a kind of introductory text because, as you'll be aware, a lot of these people are wearing PPE and they're just losing, caring for people and they don't know what their faces look like. So we agreed, actually, the, to get this thing to ship as soon as possible, they are the only features that would make V1. And... Um, anything else, we'd park and then we'd prioritise. And we're kind of going through that process now of saying, okay, um, you know, what what do we want to deal with next? The interesting side of this has been that as we've shipped, actually lots of people have come forward with their own suggestions. And Rachel, who's never done this before, is balancing the things that she thinks the app needs with the things that other people are saying the app needs and we're trying to like balance you know what is what is most important it here. can be a great eye-opener can't it sort of shipping early and then listening to feedback rather than spending a lot of time in development building loads and loads of features and then and then getting it in front of users what's been funny as well is when we got in the app store last friday uh, yeah, about midnight on Friday, and then the Guardian ran a piece on Saturday. <laughs> Great. Um, so we got loads of coverage really quickly, and there was quite a lot of feedback from people who aren't practitioners, and that is difficult for Rachel, I think, to deal with. Of okay, where is this like? Where are these like constructive ideas by practitioners, and where are these 
interesting things, but actually aren't going to make a difference in this. So this is a native mobile app that's built largely with what we usually think of as as web technologies. Um, What was the stack and what what was each part of that stack responsible for? Sit tight. Here we go. (laughs) So um, so the first thing I think I did uh, was I have like an A3 pad and I kind of mapped out data models and what I thought the kind of data structure look like. Uh, I then, I use a thing, and I don't know how I ended up using it, but it's called API-ery. I don't even know how you pronounce it. Do you know how you pronounce it? Might it might be API-ery. There you go, one of those. I think Oracle bought it a few years ago, so I think it's quite a big, big outfit now. Anyway, that allows you to write API documentation, and um, it like gives you a kind of mock API. So I did that first of all. Uh, I think this is the first thing I've ever done, which is like multilingual as well. Certainly it's the first API I've built multilingual. Um, So I had to do a bit of research and suss out. And part of the reason I decided with this to do the documentation and the mock API was just to play with a few ideas about how the API could be structured if it was multilingual. Uh, I kind of settled on um, on what I wanted the API to look like and then started to build a backend using Laravel. Uh, I use Laravel for, I do both front-end and back-end. Everything back-end I do, I use Laravel. Uh, like, it's just incredible. It's um, the speed at which you can build a proper backend it's just and a really good backend you know it's like it's fast it's incredibly clever what it does and if it wasn't for laravel i i'm sure there are other things out there maybe i'd learn ruby or something but uh, it just allows me to get stuff done very quickly so for example in the back end, you uh, create one of these flashcards and then you send it off to get the audio transcription and to get it translated into other languages. And the APIs that we use for both those services um, are quite heavily throttled. So you can only do so many requests a second. And the thought of having to deal with calling on other APIs and throttling requests and things like that. The thought of doing that without Laravel, like, uh, I, I have no idea how I'd do it. But with Laravel, you know, you kind of read the documentation, hunt down a couple of tutorials, and you're away. And so the back end was probably 90% done within three days, I'd say. Um so I got all that set up and then really turned my attention. So that, uh, there's like a uh, an admin interface whereby Rachel and others can go in and edit content and update content and add translations and um, get new uh, audio files. Um, but really the primary purpose of the backend is the API. So once that was all set, all the backend was set up, I focused my attention on the app, uh, which is entirely built uh, using React Native. 
um, and that compiles down um, uh, to both an iOS and Android app. Um, I'm Rachel doesn't have an iPhone, and I am like completely in on the Apple uh, ecosystem. Um, and partly for that reason, but partly because it's just an amazing tool set. Uh, I'm using uh, Expo, which is a collection of tools that kind of wrap around React Native to help with speedy development. So there's an Expo app, and what it allows you to do is, when you're in the development phase, completely bypass the App Store um, by just sending a JavaScript bundle to their servers. And when users download the Expo client on their phone, they can download that JavaScript bundle and load the app within the Expo. Uh, client. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Yep. Um, so Expo was really the key thing in ensuring this app could be developed really swiftly because it meant, you know, every couple of hours I could build something and Rachel could be seeing it, whereas the thought of like, you know, doing a whole build and getting it to the app store. And um, again, I'm going by the uh, Google ecosystem. There's no way you could do that every couple of hours. It just wouldn't, you'd just spend more time building than actually developing the app. So Expo was crucial in that process. So Expo is a tool that you're using as part of your development workflow to enable you to do that uh, in in the development phase, but it's not, something you go into production with is that right exactly well the so we it's used in development phase but it also handles the build process so using their cli it will build a package that you can then upload uh to the play store or to the app store so it looks after you know um all the kind of authentication and keys and certificates and all that side of things which has traditionally been such a headache and uh, like incredibly daunting as well. And that has made, um, I think that has put a lot of people off app development of, you know, getting all these certificates is so difficult. And actually Expo just makes that incredibly easy. So how did you go about constructing things on the sort of React side? I have um, a kind of starter framework. It's not a framework. I've just kind of developed a pattern of how I construct uh, apps. Um, I um, use Redux for state management. And that, um, although it's not prescriptive, there's kind of a rough structure that goes alongside that. And, yeah, I don't quite know how much detail to go into, but there's a lot of stateless components at the end of it, which I'm getting into, and I appreciate the advantages of that. One other thing that's worth mentioning is um, I'm really getting into typing this year, or trying to, like, discipline myself to do it. 
I decided, although it would take, I'm not great at it, so I knew it would take me longer to build the app with TypeScript. Mm -hmm. But it felt a lot safer doing that because intelligence in my editor around TypeScript just meant that I was, you know, wasn't making mistakes as often. And I've fallen foul of that in the past where I've not used TypeScript mm -hmm. and you know, I'm getting lots of red screens where things are undefined and I've just avoided that and managed to, uh, and that hopefully means now I can add features without risk of breaking stuff that is in there already. And have you done a lot of work with React Native before? Yep. So I've built quite a few things in React Native. It's, it's nice now because it's really settled down and this goes with the whole React ecosystem now now i think like hooks are being adopted a lot more widely and uh all those kind of that big latest batch of changes everything feels like it's settling a bit now and it's worth learning those things and implementing them and yeah it's uh, it's great it's so great. just uh, thinking about your workflow say um you you were saying you started with an api mocking up an api uh, at the back end you then built a laravel app to that API was what your Laravel app was exposing to the mobile app. Is that right? Exactly. That really the the documentation and the mock API was just to give me a standard to work towards. That is what I wanted to get to. And uh, I also <laughs> I sometimes um, find that actually I'd quite like to work on the app now and not on the kind of back end. And that allowed me to switch to work on the app while when the back end wasn't in place. So that was another reason for doing And I that. suppose that's a workflow that larger teams could use and could lean on where you might have different people developing the back end and uh, a mobile app. If you have a sort of mock API to start with, then both teams can sort of work inwards towards that API uh, at the same time. That's how I first came across this idea because actually it meant that if I was building a backend, then someone else could develop the mobile. Yeah. How do you balance under under time pressure the how do you sort of create a balance between moving quickly and relying on technologies that you are familiar with and you know you can work quickly in and you know that will do the job. How do you balance that between what might traditionally be a longer R and D phase where you work out actually what is the really best technology for this job is it a case of just going with what you know will do a good job and, and you can ship quickly or that is a good question i think as soon as it was the project was mentioned to me i thought i know exactly how i'm going to build all of this and if i didn't have kids and i sat in a dark room i think i could have probably turned it all around in about five days if i'd have been working on it solid 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 because the requirements were very much in line with my experience of building apps have built similar kind of things where it kind of calls on an api stores the results in uh, in state and presents them i'm now at a position where there's some bits where i'm like okay i need to go back and refactor that like uh, like I've spoke about typing tin, but actually the types can be quite loose in the app and that needs to be tightened up. And on the back end, there aren't many tests. And now we're starting to roll the back end out because lots of people have come forward and said, actually, this is a great resource. I'd like to volunteer my services to translate this into my native language. 
So the the back end's been used by more people. So I'm just thinking, hang on, I need a few more tests in here to make sure that nothing can break because there are people using this in production now. So it was really, I, I think that answers your question. Essentially, there was no decision making. I just had to get it out there as quickly as possible. Did at any point you consider making this as a progressive web app? We did. Uh, just before this all kicked off, there came an announcement which I don't, I didn't fully consume. There was some announcement uh, which I read on Jeremy Keith's blog, which was, which made me nervous about progressive web apps. I really love the technology and the idea behind it, but. I just didn't sense it was far enough along yet. And I don't sense it in people's psyche quite enough. Whereas telling people to go to the app store and download the app, people, everyone knows how to do that. So it just felt like the safest bet was to get the app done. I find sometimes that people are more familiar with the concept of an app than they are with the concept of a website. Yeah, my sense as well was it, it just felt too early to place all our eggs in one basket with a progressive web app. I'm sure it will get there. I really hope it will get there because it feels a much better um, solution to that. But I don't think we're quite there so yet. So you presumably build React projects for the web as, as well as React Native projects. Is this something that you could take that code base from React Native and move it to the web at some point in the future? How different are those two different uh, environments? So one of the interesting developments in React Native over the past few years is Nicholas Gallagher built a package called uh, React Native Web, which um, how uh, React Native works is uh, it's React and then you have different clients and the traditional clients are iOS and Android. But Nicholas Gallagher has built this uh, package whereby one of the clients is web. Um, so you're building a React Native app, but it spits out HTML and JavaScript. Um, and actually, I think I'm right in saying the Twitter website, I think, is built using React Native web, um, or one of the Twitter. Uh, I'm pretty sure the Twitter web client is built using React Native web. Um, and it's really good. Unfortunately, one of the packages we use doesn't transpile down to React Native Web. However, I think my job for next week is going to be to ditch that package so that we can use React Native Web. And the reason I want to do that is because the website is still currently powered by Squarespace, but I would like to use Squarespace for all the kind of marketing stuff but for the actual flashcards i would like to be using exactly the same code base as uh, the mobile apps um and calling on the same api so that we can have consistency across the board i was going to ask actually how the website fits into this so the same functionality is potentially going to be available or already is available via the website some of the functionality is available on the website that was actually built in view <laughs> On the website, we just inject some JavaScript. 
And that was a lot easier to do with Vue because it's just a load of script tags. There's no transpiling. There's no funny business. Uh, and it was just very quick. And I was very confident that I could get that working quite quickly. Uh, so, yeah, the website is done like that. But hopefully by this time next week, we'll have built that with React Native yeah, Web. You mentioned that the app needed to be multilingual um, and your flashcards are available in different languages. What how, what was the process of, of doing that and making that possible? The Squarespace site uses a plugin by a company called Weglot, which... Uh, I was quite impressed by, actually. You essentially set up a load of subdomains and point those subdomains at the Weglot server. And that then fetches the corresponding page of the English translation and translates it on the fly. Uh, And it's seemingly very reliable. And they have said for this service, they're not going to charge anything. And they have got a an API as well as that service that they offer to Squarespace. So, yeah, when a card is updated, we post all that data to Weglot along with a list of translations that are active. And Weglot send us back uh, a translation. Now, I think it is largely a wrapper around Google Translate and a few other services. Um we are really hopeful that a professional um, translation service are going to take this on. Um, yeah, I'll probably post something about that on my uh, blog this week, and it'll be on the Cardmedic website. But yeah, professional translation services have said they'll do it, and they'll do 10 languages. And then we've had a load of other people come forward and say they're really happy to translate into their languages so yeah i'm building this editor feature whereby uh, uh, uh people who are uh, like quite a few people have come forward from hungary and they can see a list of articles that have yet to receive a hungarian translation and they can just tick them off and once they're done we'll be able to push those new languages live and another api you mentioned that you made use of was one for text to speech so how did that work so the website uses a service called Site Speaker. Um, again, I think it might be a wrapper around uh, Google's um, text-to-speech services. But you send them a string of text and the language the text is in and the voice that you want, because you can have different voices, and it sends you back a an audio file, I think it like dumps it on S3 or something, sends you back a URL. Um, now there've been some tricky bits around that, around like how particular characters are encoded, especially when you get to foreign languages, that gets really difficult. But I think that is working pretty well now. One of the things that you mentioned uh, as part of the um, the sort of basic requirements for version one was the ability to search for a flashcard. Uh, how are you handling the search within the app? Is that happening uh, in the client or does that happen back on the server? That happens in the client and is ridiculously simple. And I'm sure there's a much better way of doing searches than 
seeing if one string is included in another string. But <laughs> I think, yeah, again, that might be developed because, uh, like, for example, if you're searching for breathing, almost every article <laughs> on there comes up and it probably needs to be a bit more sophisticated. But at the minute, it's doing the That's job. That's how search always starts. With, yeah. with the simplest possible solution, <laughs> and then you work out from there when you find the problems. Uh, yeah. So the the Laravel backend, how is that? Um, how is that hosted? So that is on DigitalOcean. Again, DigitalOcean have um, launched a kind of COVID relief program, so they have put a load of credit on our account to cover the cost of this, which is great. Uh, I don't think we are paying for any service, and we're using a lot of services on this. The server was built using uh, Forge, which is a, a service built by the founder of Laravel, Taylor Otwell, which spins up new DigitalOcean droplets and servers on S3 and a few other um, uh, hosting packages. It does all the stuff, in my eyes, that a sysadmin would do, like scheduling and cron jobs and you know upgrading and deployment it just makes it so simple i'd be lost without that it sounds like the architecture of this app is making a lot of use of uh, external services and and apis which is you know a nice modern way to go it given more time to investigate different options do you think it's the sort of app that could have been built with a sort of serverless approach it could have one of the funny things about it is it's not very demanding on the server. The jobs that do need to be done, like going to the text-to-speech, that's an intensive process, but we're not actually doing that process. We're just calling an API and it's somebody else's problem. There's quite a lot of requests to the server, but we cache the... Everyone's getting the same content, so we just cache the API and uh, flush the cache once every hour, I think. So there isn't actually a lot of load on the server. Uh, it's it's not the cheapest droplet, but it's not far off the cheapest droplet, and it's doing fine. So it probably could have been serverless, but again, I think that ecosystem isn't quite as well. Well, I don't know enough about it to be able to turn that out in this amount of time. Would you have done anything differently uh, looking back at the project now about the way the, the technology came together, the choices that you made? Would you have done anything differently if you could do it over? I wish we'd use React Native Web from the start. I kind of tried to do that after the fact and realized that actually I that was going to be really difficult. So I wish we'd use, I'd use React Native Web from the start and paid closer attention to that. I don't think I'd have changed anything on the back end side of things um i wish i had more time to have done it <laughs> i feel there are some bits i could have done better um and i maybe wish i could have got a designer involved like a lot of it is from a ui framework the app itself and there are some screens which i'm less happy with than others and the screen I'm least happy with is the one that The Guardian decided to feature on their homepage over the weekend. So <laughs> that was a bit annoying. Oh, once an app is ready, you know, you think about getting it into the hands of the people who need it. From a web project point of view, that's just deploying to a server or a CDN. Uh, with native apps, it's a little bit more complex than that, isn't it? You need to know about the app stores, about developer developer accounts and all that sort of business. Is that something you've done a lot of before? And how did that process go? 
Expo handle a lot of the difficult technical side of that. And the documentation on the Expo side is incredible. So actually, if you're just getting into this and you're thinking, oh, yeah, I'm you know, a front-end dev, I think I could build an app, then you should just dive into Expo and give it a whirl. Because even if you don't ship, it will take you through the whole process and explains everything really clearly. And I don't know how they do it, but their documentation, they always keep manage to keep up to date with uh, the Play Store and um, the App Store. So when the UI changes in, um, what's it called? App Store Connect, um, then actually the Expo documentation is updated, which just makes everything so much easier because you just follow their instructions and it all works works great one of the biggest stress and difficulty with the whole project came about getting approval in the app stores um so we shipped we first submitted the the app to the app uh, apple app store last thursday yeah last thursday so like eight days ago as we were recording this uh, and it was pretty promptly rejected with a very, very stern rejection notice saying, don't try this again. And it pointed us to some a document which they published but I'd not read saying, we're only going to release COVID apps from registered companies. And this was all on my developer account at the time. And my heart sank and I thought, oh God, I've spent a lot of time on this and this woman Rachel spent loads of time on it and it's not going to happen I then calmed down a bit and we rushed through her a developer account for her company thankfully she was Card Medic is a registered trademarked company so we rushed through a developer account made the application on her account and it was approved straight away uh, getting the Android app published has been the same process but drawn out over 10 days. And they sent us a really harsh rejection notice. Whereas Apple's was like, we don't know who you are. You're some bloke with a funny company name. Why on earth are you talking about COVID? Which I kind of understand. Um, the Google rejection notice was talking about was profiteering from the pandemic and saying that app was insensitive. And it was just very, very scary. But, uh, and I was quite disheartened, but I wrote a very firm like appeal to their rejection and said, look, we're uh, reputable. We got a letter from a consultant at the hospital. The app was on The Guardian and The Beeb last weekend and um, has also featured on Gov.uk this week. So we sent the Play Store links to those articles uh, and they uh, approved the app this morning. But yeah, that has been the biggest stress of the project because there, you obviously can't like phone up, you can't phone up Tim Cook and say, hey, where's, where's my app? You just kind of, especially with Google, you just kind of submit the app and you can put in some supporting notes, but there's no dialogue. So that was quite stressful, but we've done it now. It's in. You managed to get the app developed in about 
10 days and it sounds like the reception has been pretty good being featured on, on news outlets and going down quite well with its potential users. What are the next steps? Where does it go from here? So the next steps are getting the translations better. We really want to incorporate some features which will help people who have some kind of learning difficulty. So uh, I think that's likely to involve adding illustrations to particular cards. There's this key card which uh, shows your headshot and says, Hi, my name is Phil. I'm a doctor at UCH and so forth. That page currently isn't translated because obviously it's unique to everyone. So I want to start how I'm going to do that without, because uh, we need to do that presuming that the person is offline when they're viewing that screen. So that's a little bit challenging, but I'm sure I'll sort that out. Um, and then there's a whole load more cards to add over the weekend as we hear of more use cases and more stories about it. So uh, so we're getting some new cards written, which will help in those scenarios and we'll hopefully get those on the app soon. It sounds like very valuable work to be doing. And people can, of course, find out uh, more about the app by going to cardmedic.com. I've been learning about building apps rapidly. Uh, what have you been learning about lately, Phil? I have been learning about how to make the perfect pulled pork because it was my birthday this week and we're having a virtual Zoom party tomorrow night. So I currently have two very large cuts of pork barbecuing and they've done five hours and they've got about 12 hours to go. That sounds delicious. If I wasn't vegetarian. (laughs) 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 The pulled halloumi isn't quite as tasty, I'm afraid. If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Phil, you can follow him on Twitter, where he's at MonkeyPhil, and his personal blog is MonkeyPhil.co. You can find examples of his work and hire him to work on your projects at AmillionMonkeys.co.uk. Thanks for joining us today, Phil. Do you have any parting words? I think I'd really encourage people, if they are front-end web developers, uh, to at least explore building apps in React Native. If you've got experience in React, and you're willing to read a lot of documentation, actually the process is nowhere near as daunting as you'd imagine. This is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at SmashingMag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food.